This is Liminal Leaders, a podcast exploring the changing nature of leadership and business transformation. We are your hosts, Martin Dowson and Brian Hoadley. And not only are we producing this podcast, but we're also writing a book on liminal leadership. Each episode follows one of two formats. It's either a drop-in session where Martin and I discuss various themes in our book, reflecting on how the topics have manifested in our own practice and where we might take our writing next. Or Brian and I have a discussion with a guest expert or contributor who we want to interview as part of our research. Either way, these are pretty much the raw recordings of our conversations, with minimal editing allowing you to listen in on our working and thinking process. If you're a service designer, you are actually changing the system, not the way that when I was a product designer, I would use manufacturing processes and the sizes of circuit boards to to influence my design decisions in service design where we're working with perhaps culture, perhaps technology platforms, perhaps legacy systems, perhaps, you know, behavioral science to help people achieve their goals, which may be profit related or may be purpose related. In today's episode, Brian and I are talking with Professor Clive Gwynia, who's head of service design at the Royal College of Art. There's a full profile on Clive in the show notes, so I won't go over his extensive history from IDEO, Tangerine, Orange, not related, Samsung, Barclays, to his time now at the Royal College of Art. Suffice to say that Clive's career spanned 30 years and he's seen a lot of how design has evolved over the years. And we wanted to touch base with Clive, particularly on this theory about, or this theme of design education, where it is now, where it should be going in the future. We wanted to just hear what Clive had to say in his experience about our premise behind liminal leaders, that there's a mindset missing from the executive leadership, that perhaps design has a role to play in in upskilling and filling in that gap but also then to explore what that means for design education in the future. It's a great episode with lots of really brilliant snippets and kind of nuggets for Brian and I to take away, but I'd be really interested to understand what you as an audience have taken away from this as well, especially under this premise of what it's going to take for us to have effective leadership through these liberal states. We'll drop in and I hope you enjoy it. So Brian and I have experienced at Lloyd's Banking Group efforts around transformation, like mm. big scale transformation. And there were some things that we saw inside there that we thought were really working very, mm. very well. There's some really principles-based approaches to change as opposed to rigid frameworks. The use of systems thinking to actually understand the transformation program itself and that uh, people running it had gone back to basics and foundational principles. And so they really challenged the the quasi-agile stuff that came in. <laughs> and it was just this different mindset. And when we started to put those people together with designers and researchers, some really amazingly different things happened where the purpose of some of the change was even challenged. So Brian and I have got this kind of perspective that was like, I think there might be something missing. And then we've combined that with, What's the nature of change, like liminal thinking and liminal states where you don't really know where you're heading to, but every MBA strategy says decide where you're going and then do all the steps, but that's not really the nature of change. It's it's this sense of transformation and change, obviously, are very, very big, difficult, tricky, chaotic things, and the skill sets required in a, in a transforming organization are not necessarily the skill sets required in a steady state organization very good indeed very thought-provoking and then the premise is basically that we think that there's a role therefore for design to play but i'm not sure design even understands that role i'd be i'd be interested to know what you think about that as a kind of premise yes so i mean of course i recognize it though interestingly i've never had the i was going to use the word luxury of being in an in a team uh-huh. With, which actually has a remit to be transformational. And I was always very impressed with Lloyd's, actually, because it did have a transformation team. I mean, mm-hmm. 
the bank I work with, Barclays, never had that. Perhaps the nearest I've come to it was when I was at Cisco, where they said, but, it, but it, interestingly, we were doing transformation for the clients of Cisco, not Cisco itself, mm. which is always easier. You know, it's like the consultancy thing, isn't it? It's, it's much easier to be transformational as a consultant and then you come back and and find out that there's organ rejection as joel bailey famously called it at a lecture yes. at the rca <laughs> you know it's not sustainable so uh-huh. you know so it's like this constant discussion how do you transform with the help of external or or building it internally so but i think you raise two or three really critical points that hearing you play them back make me a little depressed because they're so true I'm not exactly sure how we can solve them. Okay. You know, I think I think that, you know, the way leaders are educated, the way they think you're right to mention, you know, the sort of MBA educational sort of ethos uh, and this idea that that leaders will have a good idea, you know, Mm -hmm. crazy strategy, Mm -hmm. massively underestimated and 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 usually from a sort of back of envelope kind of idea of a chief executive or somebody who's been called mm-hmm. head of strategy no no ability right back in our education system to really embrace discovery and yeah. evidence building and we see that in business and in government you know that all the same issues around strategy happen in policy and government mm-hmm. people make knee-jerk solutionizing decisions and then wonder why they go wrong and don't have impact mm-hmm. usually at enormous cost so yeah. In many ways, I, I stand back and look at the world I've often worked in and thought, it's completely mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's completely mad, you know, whether whether giving the keys of the car to the technology people and hoping it'll turn out all right mm-hmm. to, you know, as I say, just to sort of senior management making decisions without any evidence. With, you know, their, their, their insight comes from a mate. And it really mm-hmm. happens at CEO level, you know, mm-hmm. and you just think this is, such an amateur, amateurish way. But I think the thing that I like very much, you know, about this sort of liminal word you, you use is that the future is fuzzy. Yeah. And we need skills that allow us to explore and mm-hmm. discover and make strategic decisions based on evidence of people, of society, of technology, of the environment. Yeah. yeah. And and the, the thing that does actually give me hope just talking about it now is that I, I am involved with some companies mm-hmm. who for reasons and it'd be interesting to dig into some of the reasons why have accepted that change will happen right. and they need to know they do something about it for example on the environment you know yeah and yeah. for example by legislation so it'd be interesting to dig into a little bit of that as we talk but I yeah. think I think you have got the elephant in the room feels like yeah doesn't it i mean we i mean i i think we had this we all had this really interesting experience during the pandemic and all all you know we have to acknowledge all the all the 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 terrible experiences that people went through during that time when i'm about to talk about something we could have learned from it Mm. and hindsight's a beautiful thing but at that moment as we were going through the pandemic there were kind of two camps that represent the the way you might react to liminal states and one camp is oh my gosh, everything has changed. Everything has just, all the things I know have stopped working and I don't know what's going to happen next. And so that was true for everybody. And then you have a reaction. One reaction is, I just want it to go back to normal. And normal is what I knew and I was comfortable with. And then the other set of reactions were, well, this is really interesting. Like the future's not written yet. What an opportunity. So like, let's not, build back the systems let's think about how we could do things differently because now everything's disassembled we can we can right but there are two really and i think these come down to human psyche mm. like it, you know fundamentally you are one you 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 are more comfortable one with one or other of those approaches yeah. as an individual person and then you need to look at actually what disciplines do we have and what systems do we use and what frameworks do we use that fall to one or other of those i i think there's actually a third as well i think there's i I think there's you know there's there and i'm seeing this with with a lot of discussions that are taking place at the moment there's there's a general sense of well we we can't quite go back to what we had but we don't know what to move on to right 
So, so it's, it's not quite an embracing the old way. It's not quite an embracing the change. It's we're, we're stuck somewhere in the middle. And I think that's a liminal state, right? Yeah. Because I, I think, I think for those people, and I think we're in, we're in a liminal state right now in terms of post pandemic ish, we are arguable as to what post pandemic is (laughs) and when it is, but I think we're in a liminal state now in the, in, in terms of there, there, there are transitions taking place. But I think a lot of people don't know the context of of those transitions. I don't think they know the direction, the outcomes. I don't even think they know the outcomes they necessarily want. They they just know that things are changing, and and that that for a lot of people is very uncomfortable. They're 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 changing, but they but they're changing not because they've initiated the change, but because the change has happened, <laughs> and they're having to react to it. So so there's a lot of what's next. What do we do? Yes. I'm a big believer in the third way. So thank you for introducing that, Brian. I think there is, I think you're right. And interestingly, had a similar conversation yesterday when I did a chat with Jeff Morgan, a sort of policy and social thinker. And we were saying, for example, in education, but of course, this is true of work in general, because of co- because of the pandemic, we were forced to adapt a completely different digital lifestyle, for example, for a year and a half or so. But, we really want to see each other again. Mostly we do anyway. Certainly yeah. in education, we want people back in studios and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And and that's great. What I detect and sort of evidence of the kind of organisations that come and talk to us at the Royal College, and actually what I do in my private business as well, is that I think it's this third thing, but perhaps a little bit more positive in that they want to get the good of the old back absolutely because we want to collaborate we want to talk we want to put a physical post-it on a board rather than a Miro board (laughs) now that works pretty well that works pretty well and we can do that internationally which is great so there's always advantages Mm. of that way of working but at the same time I think there is as you say either a fear but hopefully a curiosity to say well hang on maybe maybe we can use this mood of rethinking our way out of this to observe what opportunities there might be or can we be more creative about the problems we've always had we've just right. shown that we can pivot and change quite quickly you know what what if we took that spirit into something new so i'm quite lucky in that most people that come and approach me are more the sort of actually maybe we need to do it different can you help us work out how so that's a nice bubble to be in <laughs> but you know when you actually deliver that into a big organization there's a whole load of people who aren't at all comfortable with that and in yeah. fact we've got very very specific examples where interesting global brands come to talk to us about some very interesting change in behavior but when they actually deliver that back into the organization the organization is completely puzzled it just goes so against how they've done things mm. forever and let's remember that a lot of the solutions we're now coming up with are really challenging to basic things like business models. Yes. You know, and no one wants to change a business model if you're in profit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but even though there's a car crash coming just up ahead, you're going to keep driving probably. That's what we detect anyway. So it's, it's this whole kind of how, even if you have great ideas, even if you have people positively looking for great ideas, the real transformation of an organization. And actually, Jeff Morgan said again yesterday, if we look at history, these things just take decades. <laughs> Change well, does happen, but it's very slow. Yeah, there is there is that, which is the patience to see to see change versus the urgency of some changes that we need to, you know, we need to happen yes. happen sooner. I was re- re- reflecting on the I kind of had a question in my head, which was, so what, so what are you, what are you doing with in the RCA wide, but specifically in the service design course, which you, which you lead about preparing students for, for that. But then I, I wondered whether there was another, a level to that, which is, but is that the remit of the purpose of teaching what you're teaching? So maybe either way of answering that, I, 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 I don't mean it to to be a kind of question that is a trap of like, well, you know, so what's the, <laughs> what do you see as the purpose of the service design course? What's the impact the service design course needs to have? I'm also really interested in your perspective on like what we should do with the future of design education, mm. but they may be separate questions. Yeah, no, sure. Fantastic. So, you know, in, in a way, 
I realized as you asked that question that our real purpose is in educating the people, the students will go and work for, not students. I mean, of course, we're educating the students, but I think we're actually arming them with the behaviours and the characteristics to be a good service designer. And for those people who might be listening to this, who are thinking, what, the, what on earth is service design? <laughs> Give a brief yeah. <laughs> explanation. But, you know, we're, we're in the Royal College of Art. We're in the School of Design. Yep. You know, people have strong perceptions of where design sits, usually pretty much at the end of the development process or the idea creation process. We're, we're very passionate that we need to go upstream. That's That's always been mine and I think all of our beliefs is probably why we're making this podcast we need to have a more strategic we need to explain the purpose of design at a more strategic upstream level the value it has Mm -hmm. and so service design has grown out of things like product design and and marketing and customer experience we're using the the techniques of design to visualize things to be creative to to Mm -hmm. do research into where problems lie that fuel the opportunity for better ideas. So in service design, we're designing the intangible to make the tangible world work better, I sometimes say. So <laughs> nice. we're definitely very human-centered, but not necessarily user-centered mm-hmm. because we're, we're interested in the reasons why people make decisions, why customers, citizens make decisions, perhaps. We're interested in why leaders make decisions and the processes mm-hmm. they've got. So it's it's influencing the human decision-making process. It's using design methods, as I say, creativity, research, and, and visualization, and experimentation and prototyping early in the process, Right, which is the difference between us and perhaps technology prototyping, where they build the thing and then find out it doesn't work. So we want to find out earlier, and we want to dial in the human emotion and and functional requirements, make sure they are really being satisfied. Uh, and it's part of that state of discovery and finally systems thinking because you mentioned systems thinking already Mm -hmm. and for if you're a service designer you are actually changing the system not the way when I was a product designer I would use manufacturing processes and the sizes of circuit boards to to influence my design decisions in service design where we're working with perhaps culture perhaps technology platforms perhaps legacy systems perhaps you know, behavioral science to help people achieve their goals, which may be profit related or may be purpose related. And we need to understand that at the beginning of the project. So there's lots of stuff in service design. And so we have tools that help people design services. But as I say, our real objective, I think, is to help our students be the pioneers because they, any service design graduate will find themselves having to explain, having to facilitate a much broader collaboration in any organization to achieve the wider purpose so design has moved i believe certainly in service design from let's say a specialism in user experience or graphics or product design to use all those same skills to create much more holistic solutions that are being created all the time just accidentally without coordination so i think that sort of facilitation and orchestration is what service design brings it's enhanced enhanced by design methods and goes forward to facilitate change rather than necessarily lead it in a conventional sense lead from within i would say so what are we teaching students we're teaching them to teach people policy makers strategic leaders people in purchasing, people who are at the front line, use the tools and understand what they're doing, understand who they're doing it for and why they're doing it. And we fundamentally believe that that is going to make a big difference to the quality of solutions we have for now and our future challenges. Can can I ask, getting back to the point of design needing to go further upstream in the process, this is something Martin and I... (laughs) Have, have touched on a lot. <laughs> well, probably designers generally have touched on it a lot. Do you think? Do you think? Do you think that's always been the case? Do you think we've we've kind of ended up at the end of the chain? Do you think thirty years ago, designers were were further up the chain, but have moved down the chain 
over the past few decades because I, I like you I think I've I've been in design since the 90s and I I I don't remember so much so much bureaucracy between us be, being in design and and some of the decision making that was taking place but but there has been an awful lot of over the past 3 decades changes in the design world in terms of design coming in-house from from agency to in-house, in, in-house going from centralized to decentralized, agile methodologies come in and kind of subordinating design into a production discipline. Do, 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 you think we, do you think we've kind of come downstream a bit and now we're trying to fight our way back up? And also in terms of what you've said about, you know, the you're creating people who go back and educate people inside their organizations. I think that's a really interesting point because in terms of moving design further further upstream, I think educating people across the business is about design is, is really important or the, the aspects of design that are important to their disciplines. So using, using design with finance, with, with, with technology, with, with HR to demonstrate design method and thinking and how it can, how it can help them to, to make their, their efforts better, more focused, help them deliver their strategy in a different way. So that's kind of democratizing design a little bit more across the business, but it's also exposing design more universally across the business horizontally versus in a silo, in a, in a kind of product-driven silo. Yeah, really interesting. So I suppose if I if I spend these few seconds reflecting back on my extremely long fractured career, <laughs> I suppose the truth is design has always needed a champion. You know, and right back in my days with, I don't know, Bill Moggridge in the early, you know, mm. pre-IDEO days, you know, my first days as a product designer were meeting people who wanted us to come and do something and they were tended to be individuals. And, you know, right back to more recently at the bank that I worked for, Barclays Bank, it was dependent on one or two champions who mm-hmm. who saw me taking notes in a different way in a meeting and thought, ah, we need fresh thinking and it always seems certainly in my experience to come down to people who get it and they're usually in a minority but you hope that they're senior enough to get it which is a very fragile state of affairs really so you're absolutely right I enjoyed your description of what sort of happened to design I mean in a way the success of design and it has been successful if I think of the amount quantity of design in the current world compared to where I started. You know, it's enormous, the impact of design, but it has become industrialized. And I, it's quite interesting. On my course, we have a lot of designers from the digital UX world who have become kind of cogs in a machine. You know, we need a button. We need a screen. You know, what's it for? You know, great designers try and bring the sort of process that they're taught and know works but I think design over the last 10, 20 years has has become a point of intervention. Designers, wherever they are in an organization, even in an agency, they have to look at a situation and drive it in a different way, make an intervention, which is why it's quite tough being a designer. I mean, you don't have to, of course, you can just take the brief. <laughs> yeah. And many do. <laughs> but... But, you know, I think a, a good designer, well, A, will be optimistic that they can make it better, mm-hmm. but B, be frustrated at how politically difficult that can be. Even as you rightly point out, when you've got an organisation called Transformation, it's not always designed for success. And right back to my product days, you know, my realisation was that people had made decisions that meant I could or couldn't put a radius on something. <laughs> and you ask, was it always thus? The story I heard just fairly recently was about the first IBM PC gosh do you mm-hmm. remember that yes and you know i the, the the product managers wanted to make the keyboard in sheet metal apparently according to the people wow. who were there at the time can you imagine what would have wow. happened had that happened you know and it took a designer to say no we've got to tool up we've got to use plastics and <laughs> nowadays you might find something different but yeah but at that time you know it needed to be soft it needed to be attractive you kind of almost wonder whether personal computing would have happened if we'd had a metal 
yeah. tin keyboard, you know? And yeah. and I, I, my imagination says, oh my goodness, that could have, you know, Steve Jobs might not have existed <laughs> if, <laughs> if we'd had a tin keyboard. I don't know. I mean, it's a fantasy. But you see what I, my point is? That, yeah. And designers had to make an intervention. And I think that still is very much where we are and we just need to sort of understand that that's our role and perhaps that's to be expected mm -hmm. but it would be lovely if it was a bit easier <laughs> <laughs> said, said all of us yes <laughs> right absolutely <laughs> do you, i mean I, I think this actually ties back to your really great way of describing what the the outcome i guess you're trying to have with the master's course in service design this you know, spreading spreading of the the mindset and the discipline into organizations arming these students who will, will become practitioners to be influencers inside their organization um do you think that i'm sorry i also know that you do a master's no a master master class for executives as well don't you yeah. which i know some people who've, who've been on that who said it's absolutely absolutely excellent and, and brian and i've been involved in internally delivering design mindset training i'm going to say that because i'm going to try and avoid using saying it was service design course or a design thinking mm. course or a, mm. but the, the purpose was the same was like actually can we spread the mindset how that has also become too cut and paste as well in many organizations like oh we're doing that we're rolling it out without quite enough mm. understanding the systemic impact but how important do you think that is that idea of sharing the mindset versus um, the, the tension between sharing the mindset. Brian mentioned democratizing design, which some, whenever you say democratizing something, some people go, my discipline, don't give it away. And others go, that's great because more people will understand what we do. And there's a tension point between those things. How, how important do you think it is that we hmm. get that mindset out there? And how much of our craft do we have to let go of to do that? And how do we keep what's discipline specific brilliant brilliant question martin <laughs> <laughs> it's just because yeah. if i could just give you the unsolvable questions and yeah you thank just you answer them please <laughs> <laughs> we're all taking notes so we're ready now okay <laughs> there, we there we go no it's great it's great you're absolutely right this is the eternal question isn't it you know so one let's just do a little bit of context setting on one side there's the kind of design thinking thing that especially in the US, you know, and we go, oh, we can teach that. We're management consultants. We'll we'll get the post-its out and all that kind of jazz. <laughs> and usually with fairly mediocre mm -hmm. stuff. On the other side, you've got the craft of design. And, you know, there's no question that, that that's absolutely vital. You know, at the end of all these processes, we still need the touch points, the interactions to be designed with skill and experience and creativity. No question. However, I think your use of the word mindset is absolutely critical for me. You know, I, I would probably say that the most important thing I do in the world is give those masterclasses. Slightly pompous name, I apologise. Uh, and in very much, it's in every case, it's a sort of 101, as they call mm. it in America. You know, that sort of basics, really. But it's quite interesting that people who come on them who are completely new to the topic, but also people who would say they are, let's say, service designers or digital designers, I think they still get a lot from it mm -hmm. because we very rarely sit down and 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 go through the processes mm -hmm. and they're not rocket science. You know, mm -hmm. I love Ben Reasons from LiveWorks quote, deceptively simple, tremendously effective. I think that's true nice. of just about all design methods, you know, <laughs> you know, it's not rocket science. That's probably why we slightly un undervalue them, mm. but the value is in doing them. Mm -hmm. And that's all I do. I, I give people a bit of a tub-thumping speech saying, do you know what? We're missing out by not using these design methods. We're not listening to customers. We're making massive mistakes. We're, we're giving the keys to the wrong people. Let's collaborate together. Let's try that now. You know, let's go through each of these stages. Let's look at what people are doing. Let's put people in our minds. Let's see their problems. Let's define the problem before we solutionize. You know, I ban people from having solutions really tough for some people on the course they absolutely <laughs> hate that bit <laughs> yeah yeah but then on day kind of i mean it's four half days or three half days whichever whichever format i'm using halfway through we're allowed to be creative yeah 
I make people draw. They hate that too. At the end of it, they're <laughs> jumping off the, they love it. You know, hey, I didn't know I could be creative. Mm. And that's fantastic. And then we put that into a new vision and the purpose of vision, the purpose of raising our ambition about what we could do is so liberating to people. They lose their self-repression. They collectively pitch new ideas. They listen to people's, you know, probably the most effective part of my masterclass is having people listen to other people's opinions of their ideas. Hmm. When does that ever happen? Yeah. You know, we protect our ideas. We don't yeah. let other people hear them. We, we, we fight to get money for our particular project. Mm-hmm. We're motivated and incentivized at the end of the year to say, look what I did regardless of whether it worked or had any value or had any impact on customers or, or citizens, whoever it is. So I think what, what I'm doing is changing that mindset. And I happen to use service design because I found that as a really useful vehicle to talk about things more holistically, more strategically, and make people aware. So this democratization word is very interesting because my take on that is everybody has a role in design without realizing it people are making decisions that really impact on the skill of any designer i mean let, let's let's take the most obvious example johnny ive you mm. know he was at apple three years fiddling around doing printer lids and stuff okay he did newton <laughs> that was a bad idea it turned out before it's hand. you know when when he was working step by step with his leader steve jobs I hate using Apple as an example because it's, you know, it's difficult for people to apply to apply to their own context. But my point is that that collaboration between designer and the boss in the most extreme sense has literally changed the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's where I'm trying to get to. I'm trying. I think everyone needs to be involved in design. Doesn't mean they're designers. Mm-hmm. You know, co-creation doesn't mean you get the customer to design. It means you're just learning what they might like and you build mm-hmm. that into the design process. So everyone's got a role to play. That's not the same as saying, oh, I'm the designer now. I don't need those designer guys. Yeah. But also, I think by teaching back to the students, teaching things like facilitation, how to build collaboration, how to build. Well, my favorite three words are always courage to sorry, curiosity to find out what's going on, courage to tell people, and then the spirit of collaboration to put it right together. Mm. I think everyone needs a bit of that, you know, and they need permission to be curious and permission to tell people what's going on, which let's face it, most managers don't see on PowerPoint. And and then, then the spirit of collaboration right across the board to pool our expertise and skills rather than just protect them and defend our positions. Interesting. I, I think that's interesting because the the and when I mentioned democratization, I, I I did mean it as a kind of exposure and collaboration versus versus everybody's a designer in, in the in the craft sense. You, you always have to explain that because because people's hairs go up on the back of their. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> when when you mention it, I, I think the I think the the the, the collaborations between designers and non-design business thinkers is is interesting so so the the the, the johnny ive steve jobs and and there are other there are other organizations where there are collaborations that take place between somebody somebody on the business side who who has great ideas and somebody in design who is able to to challenge and collaborate and and to kind of elevate i think that thinking the interesting thing about that to me, and when I think about design leadership today inside organizations, you, Martin and I have talked about this in the past. I see it as a series of pivots for design leaders from from kind of craft practitioner to, to manager, from manager to a capability, design capability leader. And then and then there's a pivot to to organizational leader, right? Potentially for, for some of those people. And we we've seen this in some some chief design officers manifesting in organizations either successfully or not so successfully over time. But, but sometimes the thing I think is missing is that, is that sense of understanding that as you pivot into those more senior roles, there, you, you, you pivot into a space where the, the language is different, the tools are different, the focus may be slightly different. And, and I, I, I do worry that there are a lot of design leaders who move up through the ladder without realizing it's it's not so linear. It's 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 much more pivots, and and 
And in making that pivot, there are a lot of things they need to add to their repertoire as a leader, not as a designer, but as a leader, in order to be able to expose leadership to design in the right way and have the right collaborations and conversations so that they're understood as leaders, not necessarily as designers. And, And then they're able to communicate design in a way that business leaders will understand it because they're able to speak in their languages. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering in terms of, in terms of education, again, going back to the point of creating educators through some of these programs who, who go back and explain these things or work with people inside organizations as, as you also create leaders, potential future leaders, is, is there something that you think is lacking today in terms of design leaders moving their way up through organizations? We, we, we hear this clamor of seat at the table. <laughs> all too often without, without, I think, a, a true definition of what that really means as a design leader. What, what does it mean to have a seat at the table? What are the prerequisites that you need to actually sit at that table? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a really, really great question. Again, I think the McKinsey design reports that have been coming out the last few years, they've, they've been using the metric of does an organization have a CDO? But then they've sort of discovered that even if it's yes, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're mm-hmm. kind of really at the top table. Yeah. They're kind of more sitting like a an uninvited guest, or perhaps <laughs> invited, but nobody's quite sure who they are. Yeah. And I, honestly, this debate has been going on since I don't know, since I was a student. I remember, gosh, you know, the beginning of sort of design management courses. It seems, in a way, service designers probably usurped those courses now. You know, this idea that designers should read the FT. Uh, you know, and I always said, well, leaders should read Design Week, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I always felt in America, because I've had quite a bit of experience, you know, a couple of times living there in, in the beautiful air of working at places like IDEO but, and, and being in California in places. But there always did seem to be more enthusiasm in that very innovation-led you know, innovation is a driver of capitalism mm-hmm. in the US and market competitiveness and, and differentiation and therefore design right back in the days of the original sort of startup madness in Silicon Valley. Design was seen as a really valuable, useful way of getting investment. And it was very tangible. And there seemed to be a much better dialogue. In the UK, it's always been a real struggle. You know, <laughs> engineers and accountants will rise up through an, mm. a business much more naturally than a designer will. And I do think there's an inbuilt fear of the creative and the soft in British right. culture. You know, in other cultures I've worked in, like France, for example, the definition of a designer is much more artistic, a kind of sculptor who will be listened to and they will wait for the magic dust you know, <laughs> to be <laughs> dropped on their boring projects. <laughs> so it, I think it is a bit of a cultural thing. Now I'm, now I'm reflecting on it. But your point is a really good one. And I think, sadly, there are not very many designers who are willing to make the jump. Designers love their craft. They're there mm-hmm. to practice it as long as they can. And when that finishes, often quite early in their careers, they'll go and teach, let's say. <laughs> and, and I do... Slight, slight aside at this point, I do think that, especially in Britain, we have benefited from the massive overproduction of designers. I don't think the government or the Treasury understand that in any way whatsoever. But every little business that's benefited from a graphic designer helping them market their whatever tiny business they are, you know, we reflect this a lot with the Design Business Association, the impact. Yeah of design is massively more than it than it is currently being measured. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wish someone would go and do that research. But there's an overproduction, you know, they they don't necessarily become designers. They might start a hairdresser or a or, or a restaurant or have a mate that does and 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 transform it in terms of its success. So I think there's a huge sort of unmeasured impact of design. And, and Let, I think that yeah. I think also that and I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm claiming on behalf of design things, because this goes back to the mindset thing. But I, I think that there are some more designerly mindsets when applied in other disciplines that have also been having a lot more impact. Yeah. So when you have yeah. that designerly mindset towards organizational design, right, then that organizational design work is much better. When you when you understand 
a systems level view of an organization because i've i've actually been involved in that i had one of those brilliant once in a lifetime projects where a ceo said no really <laughs> i want it to be different at the end i don't want there to be a hole but we do need to take 250 million pounds worth of cost out of this business and the key thing was he said work with my cx director because this has got to be a good experience and customer centered at the end and when we did that and understood all the ways the organization worked against itself to unlock the customer experience we then based the organizational design on what would need to be unlocked for that cx to work and that was transformative yes absolutely transformative 100% yeah right <laughs> but but we we were there to do an organizational design piece that was informed by some customer experience design and then we did the org design so brilliant yeah. Yeah, and I think actually that's a perfect segue into my real answer to your question. I think that we need designers to understand that it's we're not measured just by design activity. We're measured by results and impact. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I know it's difficult to equate, you know, which bit of the impact was design. I know we've had that argument for 20 years as well. But, and I, I do relate to my own experience here, you know, Whenever I've just put up a sign and said, design here, you know, perhaps <laughs> over-promised, as you uh -huh. tend to, over-market, it's always failed. If I've just gone in stealth-like, Trojan horse, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. my first job title at Barclays after the sort of closure, dare I say, of the design mm -hmm. uh, team there, was, was process improvement manager. And I probably achieved more being under that job title than, hey, I'm a service designer, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, because of that, I managed to start a service design team. But by mm -hmm. going in, fixing stuff that no one else could fix, mm -hmm. I changed the numbers and that's what people saw. And that bought me permission yeah. to do bigger strategic things. In the end, it killed me because everyone wanted it. <laughs> Yes. And I couldn't scale up, you know, because uh -huh. uh -huh. <laughs> I couldn't persuade HR. I needed at least 100 service designers. <laughs> no, it wasn't that many, but probably did need 100 service designers, to be honest. But, you know, you never get that. You'll get 100 people in the call center mm -hmm. because they're solving the problems that your bad service designers caused because <laughs> mm -hmm. it wasn't mm -hmm. designed. But they'd much rather pay that than put it up front and actually solve the problem early. So, you know, this is why we're always fighting against that kind of thinking. But um, I think the answer is we need designers who don't just measure design by the amount of design they do, but by the impact they have and that mm -hmm. they can share that impact and really make it stick. And we need people who can articulate that strategic value of design. And I hate to say it, but there aren't that many around. <laughs> mm. Well, look, that, that, that makes me, I mean, that's, that's a really, that's a really great summary, I think, of how, how the impact and change can happen. It, but it is a big challenge for for people to take that approach that in that way. What 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 would be what would be your hope now as you've been in the in education now and design education for you know is it is it three four years now is it four three five and years? a half years three and a half correct. years <laughs> you know now that you've got this perspective from academia you know what is your hope for the future of design education then not just your course service design mm, because mm. There, there are you know, RCA, GSA, ECA and, and Loughborough, there are all sorts of disciplines being yeah. taught. But what, what would, mm. and I know you can't speak on behalf of product design at Loughborough, you know, I, I'm not asking you to, but for design education in general, what's your hope for the future of it? Well, I validated their course, actually, so I can. You can, okay, fair <laughs> enough. <then. laughs> and other places like Sheffield Hallam and, yeah. and of course, you know, at undergraduate level and master's level, obviously like University Arts London doing service Manchester design Met as well. Manchester as well. Met, exactly, yeah. yeah. Which is terrific. I mean, you know, we, none of us have any sense of competition. The world needs more of us. <laughs> and Ma Manchester um, Met have got the UX apprenticeships that they're doing now as well, which yes. is just such an important I entry level really to design. really interesting, I agree. Yeah. 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 No, I completely agree. So, you know, a, a, bit of, a bit of my answer is that the disciplines might start to disappear I mean, right. we're always slightly troubled about our own discipline of service design, because are we really designing services anymore? It's just a, a tag now to explain 
our difference to perhaps industrial design, engineering and design products and mm-hmm. fashion and textiles. Mm-hmm. But if if I start from the local and then go global, mm-hmm. you know, it's quite clear that within, say, the School of Design at the RCA, there's a tremendous amount of overlap. Yeah. You know, when, when we bring in design practitioners to talk, we're already realising, well, hang on a minute, everyone else is interested in this as well. You know, this, you know, a big problem is we need bigger lecture rooms to actually get people in to listen so that we can all hear them together. <laughs> That's a great problem to have. So I think, you know, in terms of design, this this sh- beginning to have a shared understanding, there's still, there's still a battle's too strong a word, but a discussion between those aspects of design that depend on personal creativity, the right mm-hmm. of the creator. And it's the same in all aspects of design. And of course, we in service design have almost given up that right of creator with the facilitators of creativity, the facilitators of discovery, which if you want to be, I don't know, a car designer, you're still plugging your own mm-hmm. creativity in it. And of course we are in service design, but it's in quite a different way. But I do think those things massively complement each other the the personal creativity is fueled by a better understanding of what and why you're doing it and who for so I don't want any service designer to ever think that they're not creative they are (laughs) but there's just a lot more touch points and you're designing systems often not just Mm. a touch point and therefore having more impact I would argue so I think there's that sort of merging of the boundaries of different types of, of design which mm-hmm. is very powerful. I think that in turn creates a stronger sense of leadership in the in designers as mm-hmm. they go out into the world. And I do think the wind is behind us at the moment that people yeah. are looking to more creative. It's taken 20 years, you know, it's 20 <laughs> years or whatever since Design for Change. Mm-hmm. The work I was doing at the Design Council that led to, eventually led to things like the double diamond. Here you go. Uh, Martin's just shown me his double diamond uh, coffee mug coffee mug we just put into chat gpt can you describe the double diamond in the style of shakespeare it did it brilliantly oh i'm doing that <laughs> i'll send that round yes absolutely <laughs> yeah. i'll send my version round we can compare you know and i don't feel i think the, the the issue we have the problem we have is that the world is still moving much faster than the rate at which we get invited to the party. Design has mm-hmm. always been something mm-hmm. that waits for someone to ring us up and mm-hmm. say, it's back to where we started with our champions, you know, oh, I think we need some designers here. We can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was increasingly thinking about this this morning before I came on to this, about how one of my students said when they had a practitioner talk recently, do you mean, do you mean we wait for the client to give us a brief? Shouldn't we be briefing the client I thought, oh interesting bloody hell yes yes <laughs> and you know yes. now that would just be kind of well that's a bit difficult you know but mm-hmm. i think we should mm-hmm. and i don't think that's the same as speculative design visions or future visions though that's playing no. an increasingly interesting role in mm-hmm. raising ambition but i do think we should be saying we've got the tools and actually you know we should be ahead of you and we should yeah. be coming to you with what you should be doing that's, I think, a very exciting future, but it comes back to teaching the human how to be an activist designer rather than just sit there waiting for the briefs. That's going to be a really interesting journey for us to go on, I think. Fabulous. Oh, brilliant. Clive, I think that's all we've got time for. And now we're about to come up to the end of our time time slot together, which is just always a sad moment for me in our conversations. But thank you. I, I, Brian, I don't don't know what you've got any any comment but i just i found that really really useful really interesting to hear your perspectives on the framing that we're trying to look into but then also to see the role of and also to hear that you're already looking at service design and systems thinking in this education setting now and preparing the influencers and the facilitators of the future facilitators of the future that's what it sounds like you're teaching but uh, yeah yeah I mean, always yeah i think they're i think they're there are enough questions and conversation for another two or three hours of this session. Yeah. To be honest. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm happy to be asked back. <laughs> we're we're going to have to do a part two, part three. Yeah, yeah. But I've got to thank you because 
you know, I, I, I love the opportunity. You know, it's been always great to talk to you, Martin, and it's lovely to meet you, Brian. You. But, you know, it's when people ask you questions that your brain fires up. Mm. You know, I spend far too much of my life answering emails and solving student problems. <laughs> and these kind of opportunities to actually stop and think are fantastic. So I really appreciate you inviting me here. It's been great. You said something about your masterclass, Clive. And I, I once went to a, a coaching course on mastery in and of itself, which is really an interesting perspective. And then I, when I first did a customer experience masterclass, we invited novices and experts to take the class because the concept of mastery is a, is an unlearning and relearning and i think you said that about your masterclass that you have different levels mm. of people everybody gets something out of it yeah and every moment of reflection is an unlearning and learning and is and is is the point of mastery i asked a cx director a very well you know well-versed cx director why do you keep coming back and telling these stories at, at conferences you know you, you've done it all now and he said because every time somebody asks me something and because they're in a place that I was in 10 years ago it makes me think about all my experience differently so I think everybody gets something out of having these conversations and I think that's why they're really important but I would also just like to say thank you very much because we are trying to pull together this research for the book and this mm. is really helpful for us mm. as well on that level so thank mm. you very much well I love this I love the way you're doing this and good luck Yep. Look forward oh, to it. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Thank you very much, Clive. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Liminal Leaders. If you want to learn more about this podcast, its hosts or guests, go to liminalleaders.com. We'd love to continue the conversation with you, our listeners. Hear your feedback about this episode, thoughts about who we should talk to next, those questions you'd like us to consider in future conversations and as always suggestions for new and interesting cocktails to get us through the long nights ahead thank you for listening 